All right. Good morning, everyone. How are we this morning? It's still warm. Somebody said first service that they were waiting on snow. No. I was in New York for too long to look forward to snow. Um, <laughs> so uh, anyhow, if you would, uh, raise your hand if you need a Bible. If you don't have one with you, uh, put your hand up and we'll get one to you. And, and if, if you don't have a Bible at home or your workplace, feel free to keep the one that uh, we hand you. We want you to have the Word accessible wherever you are so that you can read it daily. Uh, J.I. Packer said, Scripture is the most up-to-date and relevant reading that ever comes my way. So with that, uh, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We'll be in Luke chapter 9 all morning. Uh, we'll flip around a little bit, but you can keep your finger there. Luke 9, starting in verse 10. It says, On the return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. There were about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did so. And he had them all sit down. And after taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And that was, and what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. O oh God of all power and authority, we submit ourselves to you this morning. We give thanks for your generous provision to us each and every day. Thank you, O oh God, for this day that we give to worship and to honor you among one another, and in unity with those on this hill and around the world. God, help us to respond rightly to your faithfulness and to resist the urge to doubt when things don't make sense. Be present with us this morning as we examine the scriptures which reveal who you are and how we are to respond to you. And so, Lord, we give this time over to you to open our hearts to hear your voice. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Today we're going to examine a text that any Christian who's been involved in church for any significant time has heard over and over and over again. You, many of us have, have heard this story preached many times. But believe it or not, it's also a highly controversial text. And you may ask, why is it controversial? It doesn't deal with alcohol. It doesn't deal with predestination and free will. It doesn't deal with credo-baptism versus pedo-baptism or gender roles in the church. It doesn't deal with sports and politics. How is Jesus hospitably using his divine power to feed thousands of people in any way controversial? Well, 
I'm so glad you asked. It, it goes back to the Enlightenment period. If you remember uh, last week, we mentioned that the massacre of the innocents in Matthew is often highlighted by critics because the only record that we have of it is contained in Matthew's gospel. So some would say, well, maybe Herod didn't really do that because we only see it there. Well, the interesting thing is that the feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned in all four gospels, which are effectively separately written works of history. And yet the critics are still insistent that this event must have somehow been manufactured or contrived. It goes back to the inception of the theological liberalism that was birthed out of the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment worldview was that we had arrived at such a heightened scientific understanding. We no longer needed these religious myths to tell us how the universe came about, how the world operates, and, and, and what we need to know in order to live good moral lives. Never mind that the early evolutionists based their spontaneous generation ideas and conclusions on the observations of tadpoles that spontaneously appeared in mud that weren't there just a few days before. They must have come from nowhere, right? Well, you had Ivy League schools like Princeton, which was actually a Presbyterian seminary, begin to succumb to what was called theological liberalism. Now, what that is, is rooted in the same worldview that there is a natural explanation for everything. Right? The Bible was even viewed as a book of myths and stories that we don't really need to be true in order to be given by God because the purpose was to help us live moral lives. So while the Bible may have been a historical backdrop, it's not a book about science and history. Uh, so even though the feeding of the 5,000 and the resurrection are the only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels, they're both considered mythical because there's no natural explanation. This is being taught, this is being taught in churches today. Uh, this is expressed more recently in a strange discipline known as the quest for the historical Jesus, in which they decide what Jesus really said in the Bible by removing anything that is miraculous or makes him out to be God. This is where we laugh. Like this is, the, this is really being taught, right? So, some critics suggest that these are legendary accounts of events that have a natural explanation, but grew over time to become supernatural. The story just kind of inflated, right? Other critics would say that the feeding of 5,000 was indeed a deceptive act by Jesus, that he went and he had disciples buy a bunch of food beforehand so that he could fabricate a miracle, or that a lot of people had brought sack lunches and Many did not think that far ahead. So what Jesus did was he, he sat them down in groups of 50. And when you put them in groups of 50 and spread the sack lunches out, there was enough food for everybody and they was fine, right? And so when he does this, he, he facilitated this great redistribution of food and revealed himself as a great socialist so that we would all be good little socialists too, just like Jesus. They, they teach this. I, I had people in my seminary classes that believed things like this. It's, it's dangerous, really. But here's the thing. That entire worldview is rooted in unbelief. 
entirely. Because theological liberalism takes the faith out of faithfulness. It, it proposes that our intellects have evolved to the point that faith is something that we just simply need for our emotional well-being, but it is of no tangible consequence to us. The reason is that it's important is because the goal in life is that we're all happy. And since God wants everyone to get along and be happy, he wouldn't tell us to refrain from doing the things that we think would make us happy. James Hetfield of the rock band Metallica puts it this way. He says, never open myself this way. Life is ours. We live it our way. All these words I don't just say, and nothing else matters. Most of you have heard that song. No, James Hetfield, something else matters way more than you doing things your way. Uh, what really matters is the answer to the question that Herod asked last week and the one that Peter answers next week, who is Jesus? The quest for the historical Jesus attempts to answer that by starting with the presupposition that he would never claim to be God or perform any miracles. What this kind of theological liberalism does is to remove sin from the equation because it reduces God's authority to something that respects and honors human autonomy. It makes the goal of Christianity to be human flourishing, which must include the pursuit of happiness. If the Bible forbids something that makes us happy, we must be reading it wrong, they would say. It doesn't mean what it says, or maybe God changed his mind on it since his creation has grown beyond his own wisdom, and at this point, he must be learning from us. These are things that are written in scholarly books that propose to be Christian books. By the way, let me just address something. That, that phrase, life is ours, we live it our way. Do you realize that that is a more dangerous and satanic lie than when James Hetfield sang, hands held back by the deepened nail, follow the God that failed? Because follow the God that failed is just angry ignorance. But life is ours, we live it our way, the emphasis on living lives our way, that comes from Aleister Crowley and Anton LaVey and the world's leading Satanists whose code reads as follows, do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And it's dangerous because it sounds reasonable and it sounds nice. And, and this lie has been filtering, believe it or not, into the Christian church subtly and seductively ever since the advent of theological liberalism that has sought to marginalize scripture within the church during the Enlightenment period. And once we're convinced that the Bible doesn't mean what it says, we can make it affirm our way of living, whatever that means. We can, it, we can make it affirm our way of doing life instead of God's intent for our lives. I'm here to tell James Hetfield and the rest of his band and anyone else, something else really does matter. Something that works supernaturally to remove people from living their way, to transform their lives, and provide substance they never knew existed. And what we're going to read today is a true miracle, something that really happened, and it points to the power and provision of the Lord Jesus. And, and, it, and it matters way more than James Hetfield lives his life or anything he says. Evidently, James Hetfield self-identifies as a table now anyway. I don't know. It's, I saw it on the internet, so it must be true. Let's, let's dig a little bit more into the miracle here that really did 
happen. Verse 10, Luke chapter 9, verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them to withdraw apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, context is everything, and that's particularly true here. Last week we saw what was kind of a parenthetical event. It was taking place uh, when, uh, with Herod Antipas there in the background. And the key point was Herod's inquiry into the identity of Jesus. Verses 7 through 9. So just back up a little bit into verse 7. It says, Now when Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. <coughs> now that seems to be taking place while the apostles are out, uh, obediently proclaiming the good news and healing people as Jesus had requested just out in towns and villages. In fact, let's look at that, Luke, one, uh, Luke 9, 1. Uh, so just back up a few more verses to verse 1. It says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, from there depart. Whatever, wherever they do not receive you, when they leave the town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now in our text today, they're returning from having done that. But what happens afterward is also very important. So let's jump ahead to verse 18. Luke 9, 18. It says, Now it happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And the answer, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God with all of this context in mind, we can see that we must remember the question, who is Jesus, as we read through this passage. That's the key that will open up our text. Ge Geographically, what was going on is they had traveled, they were on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and they traveled towards the east, going towards the northern part of the Sea of Galilee there. Um, and... That was uh, just outside of Antipas's province. And so on the next slide, you'll see that they are, that Bethsaida there is right there inside the Tetrarchy of Philip, and uh, that Antipas's um, territory was that region of Galilee on the other side. Now, I'm not sure that we ought to make too much of this, but Herod Antipas is looking for Jesus, and then they go to Philip's province. Now if you remember, Antipas had stolen Philip's wife. They're brothers, right? Um, they're Herod the Great's sons. And Antipas had stolen uh, Philip's wife. And John the Baptist 
was very critical of that, and that eventually cost John his head. Remember, they took John's head in on a platter. Uh, and the question about Jesus' identity then remains, and so the crowds are following him, and he was all the talk. Now, I don't, do we have any sports fans here? Anybody like sports? Who likes football? Just a few of you. That's disappointing. No, um, but uh, I was... If you like football, you, will, you may remind, remember 2009. I remember it very well as a longtime New York Jets fan. Uh, I was in a, a constant state of disappointment over my team's inability to get any offensive production going at all. And I, I'm telling you, I don't know why, how I could see it, and the management couldn't see that it was an offensive line problem. It's always an offensive line problem, right? But then, but then... They draft this kid from USC. Remember who that was? Sanchez. Mark Sanchez, right? You remember. Okay, now, and then head coach, brand new head coach, Rex Ryan. I saw him on TV this morning when I was getting ready. Rex Ryan, and he's, he comes in as the head coach. And you also had, on the defensive backfield, you had Darrell Revis. Do you remember Revis? It, we called it Revis Island because you don't throw over there because he's going to intercept it, right? Oh, we had Revis, and, and, and uh, then we had uh, this robust West Coast offense strategy hit the Meadowlands. And in year one, this boisterous, loud, well, they said he had swagger. Remember swagger, right? They, Rex Ryan, the head coach, with his rookie quarterback on offense, and they make history when as a first-year head coach and a rookie quarterback, they make the AFC championship game. Very first year. That was a record. Nobody had done that. And then what, what was happened? Sanchez was, was criticized. Right? He was criticized for all the interceptions he threw. And then elites like Peyton Manning would turn around and say, I wish I had a, a rookie year with that kind of record. Right? Everybody in the football world was talking about Mark Sanchez and the New York Jets. That was new to me. Right? And, and then the Broadway Joe Namath comparisons began to fly. Remember that he was on GQ and, and all that. And, and, and then Rex Ryan got a tattoo of his wife wearing a Mark Sanchez jersey, which is weird, but he did. And, 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 then, and then after that, that second year, much of the talk was, was critical, but then second year, they make the AFC Championship game again. But what was the big talk? Remember what the big talk, the big thing about Mark Sanchez was that second year? Anybody remember? The butt fumble. That's what they talked about, was the butt fumble. That's all they wanted to talk about. And it was just embarrassing. It's like, even, though, even though the fact is, how is this not bigger news? They beat the top-rated New England Patriots despite the fact that the Patriots had found multiple ways to cheat against them. And in fact, it's been over a decade, and we're still wondering how Bill, Bill Belichick got those Jets practice tapes, right? Like... Now, I know that we're not all football fans in here, and regrettably, we're not all Jets fans, but for those who are into football, the Jets dominated the conversation in 2009 and 2010, didn't they? They really did. Uh, Mark Sanchez was a household name. It's a good thing Clint's not here. Uh, he would be wondering why I, instead I hadn't brought up the 49ers in the Joe Montana years. It's because nobody cares. But you know, you know how it is with sports, right? 
every now and then there's a standout and everybody's talking about him, right? Like, who was alive when Babe Ruth was hitting home runs? Anybody? No, nobody. And we still talk about him, right? Like, or Kobe Bryant. Lots of reasons we talk about Kobe Bryant, good and bad, uh, right? Michael Jordan, we still wear his shoes, right? When I lived in Denver, Todd Helton, any baseball fans? Todd Helton was the big talk of the town, the, this, this household name in Denver. And then remember the Oakland A's of the 1980s and then the, the 49ers of the late 80s and early 90s with Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and all those guys just winning Super Bowls, like just stacking up rings, right? Uh, and and I, I remember I, I played football in high school. I practiced football in high school. Um, and at practice... Um, I remember we go, all go for a break, and we're all sweaty, and we had to run. We called it Hemorrhoid Hill right there um, at, at Temecula Valley High School, and we're all sweaty, and we're, we get our water, and we're right next to the varsity baseball diamond, and who is out practicing with his coach? Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds right there in front of us at our high school. We're like, whoa, it's Barry Bonds, and then he just ridiculed and belittled our star varsity baseball player and so for like the next like year we just couldn't stop talking about how much we hated Barry Bonds um, and that's just what it was right but it was a kind of a big deal that he he had shown up and he was kind of a big talk but and then in the political world right it's been almost two years and who can't we shut up about Donald Trump right we're still talking about him there are people that just you evoke conversation. They, we talk about them. In the context of our passage today, it's about Jesus, who nobody could stop talking about at this point. They'd heard miracles. They'd seen miracles. His disciples are out preaching and healing people. Like, what is going on here? Different towns and villages. People are, you, they couldn't shut up about Jesus, right? Positive thoughts, negative thoughts. Neutral thoughts, they're, they're all talking about Jesus at this point. They're trying to figure him out. Is, is he John, raised from the dead? Is he Elijah? Is he one of the prophets of old? By the way, speaking of the New York Jets, I'm wearing my Jets shirt today because guess who they're playing? The Patriots. Right now, don't tell me the score. It's being recorded in my house. I'm not going to watch it until I'm done here. <laughs> While Jesus is withdrawing, the people go and they follow him. They couldn't stop following him. They're trying to figure him out. Everybody wanted to figure out Jesus. And, and he graciously welcomes them. And, and so in verse 12, it continues here. Luke 9, 12, it says, The day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. Now the 12 apostles uh, identify a concern and then they propose a solution. And I, I think oftentimes we tend to be ready to be critical of them, right? Like we know that Jesus is going to say something different than they had suggested and so we find a way to make them wrong. And I think we need to be careful with that. Look at this, 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. It says, humble yourselves... Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
you know what? There's nothing wrong with coming to God with a need. The disciples didn't do anything wrong here. They came to him with a need. In fact, we should come to God with our needs. He wants to meet our needs. And there's nothing wrong with identifying what we think might solve our needs. How many of us have ever prayed that God would help us to find a decent job? I think most people, most Christians have prayed for that, right? That's a, that's a responsible prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. We need money to provide for our families. It's how the world works, right? Now, God may provide for your need in a different way. Maybe you find the winning lottery ticket on the ground, or you get an inheritance from your long-lost uncle that you've never met, whatever, right? But the normal way of providing is through a job, so there's nothing wrong with praying for normal things, with addressing God with the normal things. Just because we're not asking God for a miracle doesn't mean we trust Jesus less. And the same thing goes with the disciples. It's just a conversation here like, hey Jesus, it's getting late. We're getting hungry. Monday night football's almost on. And so why don't we just have everyone go off, get a room, get, some, get a meal, and we'll pick this up in the morning, right? That is perfectly reasonable. At this point, though, Jesus decides he's going to do more than just meet a physical need. He could have done, he could have met their physical need by just going along with the, the, the suggestion that the disciples gave him, right? Would have worked. Um, but, but here he's going to reveal something about his power and his hospitality. And it may even hit some about his identity, looking back to the miraculous provision of manna and quail as the Israelites wandered in the desert so long before. Verse 13, but he says to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, uh, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Um, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. Now, the, the problem was that it was getting later and the people were going to need something to eat. We, we don't need to invent an additional problem here. Like, oh, well, they need, Jesus couldn't send them off because they needed to hear more teaching. Or Jesus knew that, that, that sending them off wouldn't solve the problem. Right? It, we could assume those things, and maybe there's more to it, but you know, what the Bible says is enough. Right? He, Jesus may simply be fixing the same problem in a different way than they suggested. And so we also don't need to insert things like lack of faith. Like, the twelve believed him enough to do what he said, which is better than we can do most of the time, at least me, right? So, then he's effectively going to use this as an object lesson to reveal both his faithfulness and his identity. I don't see any skepticism on the part of the twelve. In fact, if anything, I think that when he tells them to, to go and feed everyone, they're probably thinking, dude, this is going to be awesome. Right? Because they've seen it, right? They've been developing their faith to the point that he could send them out on their own. Right? They, they'd seen it. And that's how faith works. If any of you, anybody here ever worked construction, right? The, the first time, a few of you, the first time you get on a scissor lift, that thing's sketchy, isn't it? The first time you get, you're going up and it's kind of shaking and jerking and you go up and then it like hits them, you know, and then it keeps going and you get up and 
they sway back and forth when you get up there, and then they, you start to drive it, and it kind of jerks a little bit, and, and, but it's real slow when it's up high, right, because it has that little, you know, uh, the little relay or whatever, so it doesn't let you go too fast, and then you start moving from one fixture to the next at like 40 feet up, right, and, and, and then you run over a little tech screw, and what's it feel like? It feels like it's going to launch you across the warehouse, right? Like, boom, right? Just that little tech screw. And, and, but once you get comfortable and you understand how the thing moves and you're, you get used to the, those sensations, you understand and you know the lift isn't going to fall over. You're more comfortable. It's, it becomes easier to work off that lift without like hanging onto the rails for dear life while you're trying to work with one screw. Right? That, was my, that was my first job. I'm like, how do I do this with one hand, right? But you learn to trust the lift. And then you learn to disconnect the safety switches so that you can move faster at 40 feet and be more productive because you've learned to trust the lift more than you trust OSHA. I've never done that. But... Um, <laughs> It's, it's the same thing with faith, right? The, the more you exercise it, the easier it becomes to trust God, right? Because he never fails us. He's not going to fail us. And we've learned that because we've observed it. We've witnessed it. Jesus starts by telling the 12 to do something impossible. What does he tell us? Or what does that tell us, rather? He tells them to do something impossible. Something they can't do. He tells us he's about to do something impossible, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Right? We're told in the Bible to do impossible things. There are things the Bible commands us to do, that Jesus commands us to do, that we can't do. Let me give you one example. Matthew 5.48. Matthew 5.48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who's good at that? Right? But when we see things like that, we can be confident that God is going to work. He's going to reveal His faithfulness to us. Because nobody can be perfect, right? Not even Chuck Norris can be perfect. He, he's telling the disciples to do something that they cannot do. To show them that he can. You can imagine Jesus with his little, his little rabbi hat and the little curly Q sideburn things. He was a rabbi. He was a Jewish rabbi. He didn't look like the pictures that we see him, right? Uh, he, he tells him he tells him to go feed the people, and then they give him a full inventory of the inadequate amount of food that they have to accomplish this. And imagine, as a rabbi, this is how I picture it. They're telling him, you know, that how impossible this is. And he goes, aha, right? Just like a Jewish rabbi, you know how they do, right? It's a beautifully rabbinical teaching moment for Jesus. He was a, he was a Jewish rabbi. I, I don't know where we get that pretty Jesus picture, like where he has product in his hair and he's wearing a dashiki and Birkenstocks, right? And he's just kind of like this. I don't know where that comes. He was a rabbi. He was a Jewish rabbi. Uh, verse 14 begins by telling us that there were about 5,000 men. Now, that doesn't count women and children. So there could have been two or three times as many people as that, right? 
Let's continue in verse 14. It says, And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. It made no sense, but the 12 did what he told them to. Why would they do that? Why would they go do something that doesn't make sense? Because they had witnessed and experienced his faithfulness. Our faith as Christians, overall, it's pretty rational. It's pretty reasonable. When we put all the facts together and all the history together and, every, and, and all the archaeology and everything, it makes a lot of sense. And because of that, we can oftentimes be prone to wanting an explanation for everything. Right? So our faith is generally very reasonable. It becomes upsetting when we can't reason through something. But notice here, and this is very important, notice that he doesn't ask them to make sense of it. He just tells them to do it. Because they had witnessed his power and his faithfulness. They knew they could trust him. And so they did. J.P. Moreland said, faith is trusting what we have reason to believe is true. And because of what they had witnessed up to this point, it would be foolish of them not to trust and obey him. And what's weird in my life is I find I have seen God work so radically and like provide for me in ways like, how did this even work out? I one time, this was the stupidest thing I've ever done. I had enough to pay for my deposit and first month salary on an apartment and gas to get from Southern California to Denver. And no job lined up and no nothing. And I did it because I felt like God was calling me to. And God provided. I, within a week, I was working, making okay money. So, and, and then we did some church planning work out there. And yet, later on, I look at my budget and I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do? I don't know what we're going to do. Like, did I not see God just do this? Right? He, he provides. He, he's shown us. He's demonstrated his faithfulness. John Herkus said, trust God even when the pieces don't seem to fit. Notice the last option that the 12 give. I mean, it would cost a lot of money to feed that many people. Right? right? Like my wife and I have, we could have a hard time feeding all eight of us. Right? Like eight people is hard. It costs at least 60 bucks to go to In-N-Out for my family. That's a lot that seems like a lot of money. I don't know. Can you imagine Judas when the suggestion comes up? Yeah, let's go feed between five and 15,000 people. Let's just go buy food for them. And Judas has the money bag. He's like, uh, don't count that, right? Remember, because he was scraping some off the top. You remember that, right? So verse 16, it says, in taking the five loaves and the two fish, he, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Now, if you recall, the Lord gave the Israelites manna, which was this like bready, starchy substance from the sky, something that he, God was miraculously feeding with them with, right? But they got tired of it, and they wanted something more than mere provision. They wanted something that tasted good. Remember this in, in, in Numbers 11, verse 4? says, now the rabble that was among them had had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish 
We ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Are you guys getting hungry? I am. Uh, but, but now our strength is dried up. There's nothing but all this manna to look at. So what did God say? You ungrateful people, eat your manna. No, that's not what he did, right? What did he do? He gave him quail, right? That was pretty gracious of God, I would think. They, they wanted fish, though, and, and look what Jesus does. Look what he does. He's providing what the Israelites in the desert so many centuries before were after. He's providing that thing, including the fish that they had been craving. Now think about this. What were the, in Jesus' day, what were these first century Jewish people looking for? Anybody? What were they? They were looking for Messiah. The, the first century Jews were looking, that's all they could talk about. And now they see Jesus and there's all this. And, and so this object lesson here, he's pointing to his identity as the God of the Exodus that provided manna and quail. Right? He is indirectly revealing that he is Yahweh. He is the one that provided manna and quail for the Israelites in the desert. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And he's carefully answering the question at hand. Who is Jesus? So it's also important to all four gospel writers to mention a little piece here. That he said a blessing. Or he gave thanks for this food that he was about to provide. John Calvin said this about that. He said, now Christ has taught us by his example that we cannot partake of our food with holiness and purity unless we express our gratitude to God from whose hand it comes to us. Do we have to pray before every meal? No. But this is the reason that we faithfully do it. Because it honors God to give thanks for what he has provided. Right? Right? Look at what Christ accomplished through this simple obedience. Just, okay, it doesn't make sense, Jesus, but we're going to go ahead, do what you said. You've done bigger things. The twelve had no control over the portions that were available. They had no control over the outcome. But Jesus worked in their obedience. Verse 17. Verse 17. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now this wasn't just enough to hold them over, right? They were satisfied. The provision was so adequate that there were 12 baskets containing the leftovers from the five loaves of bread and two fish. What that implies is that Christ's provision is so good that there were more leftovers than there was food to begin with. Anybody else ever have that problem in your kitchen? No, I don't. I, I'll make enough for leftovers for like two more meals, and my boys will eat them all. At that mean, it's insane, right? But here, there's actually more leftovers. It implies something about Christ. Look at this in Ephesians three, verse twenty. Ephesians three twenty and twenty-one. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly uh, than all we can ask or think 
according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Far more abundantly. It would probably take close to an average annual wage to feed a crowd of that size, even if it was just the 5,000 men. And yet everyone ate and was satisfied, and it didn't cost them anything. He did it at no charge, and they didn't have to have a huge fundraiser. He just did it. And I think the most obvious revelation about Jesus here is his faithfulness. He didn't leave any. He didn't leave anyone hanging. In fact, he he didn't leave anyone with their own uh, to their own devices to provide food for themselves or for anyone else. When we're talking about faith, it always starts with God's faithfulness. We're not the initiators in our relationship with God. Who do, who did the work here? Jesus. That this work that Jesus did to feed the masses was not predicated on the faithfulness of the masses or even the disciples. All they had to do was obey and leave the results to him. J.I. Packer said, faithfulness is our business. Fruitfulness is an issue that we must be content to leave with God. Remember, faithfulness always starts with God. Many of us have Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 memorized. Some of us through, through verse 10. Ephesians 2, 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now I think we tend to read this passage as being a little too much about us. Let's zero on verse 8, eight here for a second. For by, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that of your own doing, it's the gift of God. Interestingly, that word translated faith can actually be translated faithfulness. And as we continue, it says the faith isn't from us, but it's a gift from God. What that could mean is that God causes us to believe in him. But it's also possible that it could be speaking not of our faithfulness, but more directly of God's faithfulness, rather than, again, the faithfulness that he would cause us to exercise towards him. In other words, we can say that we have been saved by God's grace through his faithfulness to us. Verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not because of anything we've done, so that we can take zero credit for what, whatsoever at all for being saved. This is God's work. Because here in verse 10 is what it says. It says, for, now he switches the object. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see that? Because God was faithful to save us by grace, we are now free to accomplish what he has set before us to do. That's amazing. All we do is obey, and the results are up to him. We don't need to worry about the rest, right? Because faith equals faithfulness. We aren't saved because we did anything good. We do good things because we're saved. Right? Faith equals faithfulness. If we trust him, we will obey him because we always act according to what we believe. Don't we? And here's the thing. If the disciples obeyed, 
gave away the loaves and fish, and gave back with more than they started with. What does that say about what God will do with us when we obey? When, when we're faithful? John Nolan said it points to the future. If five loaves and two fishes go so far, what now can be done with 12 baskets of food? Speaking of God's abundant provision, his faithfulness to us. Wayne's going to come up here and serve us communion in a moment. There's nothing more faithful to us than the cross where Jesus shed his blood and took our sins upon his body. And so this morning as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, I'd like us all to reflect. Would you reflect on God's abundant faithfulness to you? The faithfulness that you have witnessed. Faithfulness that you've seen and experienced as you receive. Let's pray. Our holy God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for giving not only what we need, but so much beyond that. We ask, oh God, that you would guard us from doubt. Give us strength to obey you, even when it makes no sense to us. May we be faithful as you are faithful. Thank you, oh God, for the cross where you conquered sin and paid the price so that we could know you. Father, as we look upon the cross and upon the elements that reflect your faithfulness, prepare our hearts to receive your faithful gift of communion. Prepare us for your mission field. Prepare us to be grateful. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.